Turn with me, please, then, in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Hear with me, then, the reading of God's Word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, everything has a time. And if you live long enough, you know this. The author of Ecclesiastes tells us this in chapter 3, verses 1-8. through where we read, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. And a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace. And a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. This is the same thing I'm sure that many of us were taught as we grew up. This is something that I'm sure that we've all imparted to our own children. I know when we take our children places, especially nice places, to a wedding, to church, to a friend's house, what is it that we say to them? Now is not the time to misbehave to be running around and being loud. Now is the time to be quiet, to be respectful, to do what you're told. And we tell them, but if you do that, there will be a time. When we get home, you can go in the backyard and you can jump around and do whatever you like. We as adults understand that there is a time for certain things. When we go to our, our employments, our places of occupation, there's a time to be serious 
and to do our work. Many parents today over this past spring have learned something that homeschool parents have known for a long time. As we've been forced to to teach our kids at home, to have school at home, no longer send them to the classroom. Right? You've learned there's a time that you need to set aside for school to be done. There's a time for quiet in the home. There's a time to be focused. There's a time to get your work done. But when all that's done, then you can have time to go out and play. But everything, everything has a time. And this is essentially what Jesus' response is to the question posed to Him in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, we're told. And people came and said to Him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus' response is, Now is not the time. And as we'll see in our text, Jesus will break down to them and metaphors which they will understand. Why now? Why at this moment, when Jesus is in the midst of His disciples, why that is not the time to fast? And this is the the point that we are going to look at today. And we're going to look at that under two headings. The first is that Jesus' disciples were not to fast because Jesus was present. Our second point is, Jesus' disciples were not to fast because a new era has come. So Jesus was present and the new era has come. Now first, we have to ask ourselves, why is this even a big deal? Why are they fighting about fasting? That's not something that we hear in church today. Nobody's quarreling or fighting about who and who is not fasting. So why is this question of fasting such a big deal? Well, we have to remember that John's disciples, as well as the Pharisees and their followers, would be Jews. They would be those who observe the ceremonial as well as the civil law. And fasting was something prescribed in the Torah. It was prescribed in those first five books of the law. And according to the law, fasting was appointed for one day of the year. And that day was the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32 tells us, On that day it shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you should afflict yourselves, or you should deny yourselves. You see, it was a day of fasting. A holy day of repentance. For on this day they were to be cleansed of their sins. Fasting, although we likewise reads, occurs in conjunction with mourning. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12 we read, They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for all the people of the Lord in the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So this wasn't a fast that was commanded, but it was a, a religious practice, a religious exercise. Now over time, more days of fasting were added. So much so that if you recall from Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What is it that the Pharisee says as he he prays? He says, I fast two times a week. Pharisees at this time would have fasted on a Monday and on a Thursday. Now it's to be observed that we aren't told the reason for the uh, fasting of either John's disciples or the Pharisees. 
Right? John's disciples could have been fasting because they were mourning the imprisonment of John. But likewise, they could have also been fasting for the same reason that the Pharisees and their followers fasted. And that was to appear pious. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, so that when they fast, they may be seen by others. You see, the Pharisees would fast weekly because they thought of themselves religiously superior to others. They thought that they were more devout in their practice and in their faith. And we even get this notion from the name Pharisees. Right? This word Pharisee means the separated ones. The separated ones. And they first come on the scene in about the year 135 B.C. And they quickly become the most respected group within Judaism. Now, their origin isn't known for certain, but it's possible that they formed out of a desire to separate from those Jews who were not obedient to the law. And so these were men who joined together to truly observe the law, separating themselves from those who they seen as lawbreakers. One of the most famous of Pharisees is the historian Josephus. And Josephus in his works describes to us some of the characteristics of the Pharisees. One, which is they follow the law in strict and minute and fine detail. Right? They were scrupulous in their practice. They held not only to the written law, to the written Torah, but they likewise held to the oral Torah, which was that interpretation of the law given by their forefathers. Now, interestingly enough, it was the Sadducees who denied the oral Torah. And they only held to the written Torah. But the Pharisees had the great multitude on their side. And the Pharisees likewise believed that it was strict adherence to the oral Torah that would allow them to fulfill the written Torah. And so we can see why they seem pretty uptight a lot of times in the Scriptures. Because they believe that in obeying the oral Torah, they will be fulfilling the written Torah. And so with this in mind, then we can move forward and understand why this would be a great issue for the Jews at this time that Jesus and His disciples were not fasting. But what are we told is Jesus' response to the question of why they don't fast? Why they didn't participate in that weekly fast? Because right? Jesus never falters at any point in God's law. Right? So they're saying, why, why is it that you don't fast with us weekly? And so Jesus answers in verse 19 and 20. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Right? See, here Jesus uses an analogy that all gathered would have clearly understood. Right? This is a, an example that all of us here, I'm sure, can envision and understand as he uses this example of a, of a wedding banquet, right? bringing to mind what occurs during the, a wedding. And if any of you have been to a wedding, some of you more recently than others, you can relate. A wedding is a time for what? For celebration. For a lot of eating. For drinking. For joy and happiness and festivities. We've already said 
that fasting is for mourning and repentance. So fasting, brothers and sisters, has no place at a wedding feast. And so Jesus' response is, the bridegroom is here. And with it, all His friends have come to celebrate in this wedding. So now is not the time to mourn and be sad. But now is the time for joy and gladness. Now what's interesting though, is in the Old Testament, the Messiah is never depicted as the bridegroom. But do you know who is? God is. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, we read this. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Here in our text today, you see how Jesus is slowly, more and more revealing Himself in His identity. Although it seems to have been glossed over then, we now with the full picture can see what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, My disciples do not fast because God is with them. He can say, My disciples do not fast because they are in the presence of God. And so now is a time for joy. Alright, this is what the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds in the field. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The point is, with the coming of Christ, God incarnate dwells amongst His people. And so with the coming of Christ, now we have the Gospel. We have grace. We have salvation. We have the miraculous power of God. We have His healing. We have great gifts. And so now is not the time for sadness. Now is the time for gladness. For the light of the world has come into this world. And all who have received Him, all who have believed His name, He has given a right to be children of God. And how can anyone mourn when the King and His kingdom have drawn near? Yet, brothers and sisters, let us not be mistaken by our Lord's response and think that fasting has no place or that fasting serves no purpose. Because it does. Right? Jesus says, right now, when I am amongst my disciples, now is not the time for fasting. Right? Now is not the time to mourn, but have joy. Now is not the time to fast, but eat. But Jesus says, there, there will be a day for fasting. And what does He point to? He points to His death as the day of fasting. He says, in that day, the bridegroom will be taken. And when that happens, you will fast. There will be mourning and weeping. This is an appropriate time for fasting. And from our Lord's response, there are two points that I want to draw out. The first is that we should mourn death. We should mourn death. And you, you would think that this is obvious. You think it would be obvious. But it's not. It appears that more and more today, people are afraid to mourn death. And we see that especially in the trend now of instead of having a funeral, you have celebrations of life. 
One of my favorite theologians is Carl Truman. He was a pastor in the OPC. He taught at Westminster as a, as a uh, historian. And in 2016, he wrote this. And that so many funerals are now cast as celebrations of life reflects a childish refusal to acknowledge what we all know to be true, that death is universal and it's universally devastating. I'm sure many of us here today have heard of these celebrations of life. It wasn't too long ago, maybe a month or two ago, I was driving in the car and a funeral home message came on and they they were given 20 different ways that you could lay a family member to rest. One of them being celebrations of life. Now you might expect this growing trend from a world that is full of superficiality. But it's sad that now Christians have capitulated to this trend as well. You see, how we go about the funeral service is a clear indication of how serious we take life. Is life just one big fun ride that serves our purpose to grant to us everything we want and desire until it's over? And then when we perish, we bury and hide the pain of loss just like we bury and hide our knowledge of the existence of God and the reality of eternal damnation and we just bury it away? Or do we recognize the sadness of death and its result coming from the fall and sin? Do we weep during those times of death? And do we mourn for the loss of a spouse, of a brother or sister in Christ, of a child? Do we reflect upon a a life well lived in the service of the great and mighty King? Well, what was Jesus' response to death? When Lazarus died, what happened? Did Jesus say, gather everyone and let's have a big celebration of Lazarus? No. We read that He was deeply moved in His spirit and He was greatly troubled. And Jesus, like everyone else who was near Him, wept. They wept. Death is a time of sorrow and mourning and weeping. We lost as a society the idea that there are appropriate times and seasons for certain events. The world thinks any time I choose to do something, that is the right time. And however I choose to do it, that is the right way. But that is selfish, and that is self-centered, and that is not what Scripture promotes. Now the other point that I want to draw out for us is that although Jesus and His disciples were told did not engage in this weekly fast, it wasn't because we are not supposed to fast. Fasting is to be practiced based on the occasion. And the violent death of Jesus Christ upon the cross was one such occasion. But I want us to see how grief and fasting are inseparable. 
The weekly fasting of the Pharisees wasn't about grief. It wasn't about repentance. It wasn't about mourning. It was about cold repetition and formalism. Fasting, brothers and sisters, is not something that we schedule into our weekly planner. But rather, fasting is something that comes upon us that is special and particular, as we see described by Jesus in our text today. But I also want us to know that just as we read that Jesus is put to death, and that was a time of fasting, that it doesn't mean that today and until He returns is a perpetual time of fasting. For in the exaltation of Christ, that is a time of joy, not mourning. Yet there remains certain times for fasting. And the fasting I'm talking about isn't going on a diet. It's a religious fast. A fasting from food and drink, not for a slimmer waste, but so that we might spend our time in the presence of the Lord. This is the fasting that the Reformers promoted. A God-focused fasting where we secretly humble ourselves before God out of repentance or turning to Him toward, turning towards Him excuse me, in times of calamity and plague and trouble. Turning to Him in times of mourning and death and loss. Or turning to Him and humbling ourselves in order that we might attain or obtain what it is that God has promised us. But regardless of the case, fasting serves to humble our souls before God and demonstrate to Him that we hunger and thirst for God more than we hunger and thirst for our physical nourishment. Fasting serves to cause us to depend on God in that day that we fast, doesn't it? We have to lean on Him for our sustenance and for our strength. It causes us to be spiritually alert. It draws us to God. It drives us to Him in prayer. It demonstrates to God our utter reliance and need upon Him for everything. And so, brothers and sisters, I would exhort you this day, if there is sin, perhaps, that you are dealing with, that you are struggling with, turn to the Lord. Fast. Humble yourselves before Him. Ask Him for the ability to put to death that sin that is plaguing you. Or, during this time now and over these past few months as we've been dealing with this pandemic, this has been a time for fasting. As we know that plague and calamity is a result of sin. And so this is a time for us to to reflect on that. To repent of our own sinfulness, knowing that no calamity happens outside of the God who dispenses it. And He dispenses it in order that for saints, that we might be reformed and that we might be matured in our faith. And yet during these times, He calls upon us to seek Him. Because He says He, he is our refuge. He is our protector. He is our fortress. And so let us take those times, brothers and sisters, those special and those particular times, and fast, plead with Him with a broken and contrite heart. Because I tell you, the absence of any notion of fasting any longer in the Christian church today is a demonstration of the sad sign and the decline of Christianity. Because a doctrine 
that was seen as vitally important by the reformers and was necessary for a rich and robust Christian faith no longer has a voice. You see, no longer are we to set aside one particular day, but we are told, brothers and sisters, that we ought to fast. God, through His prophets, tell us this, that there are times when fasting is warranted. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, we are told, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, with weeping and mourning, rending your hearts and not your garments. So I encourage all of you, when this time presents itself, fast and with a sincere heart, go before the Lord and He will bless that. He will bless it. But then starting in verse 21, Jesus changes the metaphor. So please look with me starting in verse 21. We read this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here then, brothers and sisters, we turn to point number two, which is the new era has come. See, Jesus' point is this, is that with His arrival and with His appearance, you can't mix the old covenant ceremonies with Christ in the Gospel. The time for the old covenant observance is gone. And the new Gospel era has become with the coming of Christ in the Kingdom. So Jesus makes this point using two more analogies. So first He says, no one sows a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment because it will end up tearing away and making a worse rip than it was before. Now, brothers and sisters, I cannot sew, nor am I known as a great laundry man, but what I can do, my wife will attest to, is I can fold laundry efficiently. But the point is this. When you... Take an old piece of, let's say, old t-shirt and you wash it and dry and wash it and dry and wash it and dry. What happens? It shrinks, right? Until it can't shrink no more. And then let's say there's a tear in it. And you take that, that new piece of cloth and you, you stitch it in there perfectly to cover that hole. Well, what's going to happen when you throw it in the wash and throw it in the dryer and throw it in the wash and throw it in the dryer? That new piece that fit in there so well is now going to shrink And it's going to be the only thing that's shrinking. And it's going to tear away. It's going to make a a greater tear than what was once there. And our Lord makes the same point using another analogy about putting new wine into old wineskins. Because why? When you do, the old wineskins will burst. Now, wineskins were typically made from goat skin. And so what would happen is you you would pour this new wine into the new wineskin and the wine, as it fermented, would give off a gas. And that would cause the wineskin to expand. Well, what happens once the wineskin expands to its max? If you pour new wine into it, and it gives off that gas, the wineskin is going to burst. And you're going to lose the wine and ruin the wineskin. But the message our Lord conveys with these two examples 
is one that demonstrates for us. This is what he's trying to teach us. This is the message he's conveying to us. Is the incongruity of mixing the old with the new. Right? You can't take Jesus and slap him onto the new, onto the old covenant and think everything will be okay. And people try to do this today often, don't they? They treat Jesus like a patch that they can just put on their old system and beliefs. People think they can slap the name of Jesus on everything and it becomes a Christian belief. Right? The Jehovah Witnesses do that today, don't they? They say, we have Christ. We believe in Him. Well, not the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. They don't. Right? Spiritualists today say, well, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, we, we don't believe in organized religion. Right? But they, they slap Him onto their made-up spiritualism. And they say, well, we, we, we just don't attend church. Like that makes them all of a sudden loyal subjects of Christ. Right? The Mormons do this. They slap Jesus onto their teaching and doctrine. All cults do this. They think that they're just slapping or patching Jesus onto their doctrine and teaching makes everything else okay. But what is Jesus' response? I'm not a patch to be put on anything. Jesus is saying, in fact, to be a Christian, you cannot hold on to your old ways. You cannot hold on to your old traditions. You cannot hold on to those old ceremonies that were shadows of my very coming. For I am here. Jesus came in His person to fulfill the entirety of the law which we were incapable of doing. The Old Covenant pointed to Christ, but now Christ has came and has fulfilled it and has become obsolete. And He has brought with it a new economy, a new covenant. So being a part of that Old Covenant and a member of Israel is no longer enough, Jesus is saying. This is what John the Baptist tells the Pharisees. Remember, as they approach him at the Jordan River, he says, don't think that being physical descendants of Abraham grants you anything. For Jesus can raise up those stones and make them children of Abraham. You see, you must enter the new covenant through Christ alone in order to become a member of the kingdom of God. And that only comes through belief in the Son of God and the gospel of grace. And it was the behavior of the Lord's disciples and their refraining from fasting that we see the joyful experience of the kingdom. See, brothers and sisters, no more is there for us a weekly or a yearly observance of a particular day by which we must fast. Because what was the Day of Atonement? Turn with me, if you will, please, in your Bibles. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Look at verse, starting at verse 30, please. Leviticus 16, verse 30. This is what we read. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar 
And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sin. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, brothers and sisters, no longer do we need a priest to sacrifice in our behalf to appease the wrath of God. For God has executed that wrath upon Christ on the cross. We will not suffer the wrath of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. As the author of Hebrews in this chapter speaks directly to this day of atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verses 6 and 7. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is what we read. Speaking of the Day of Atonement. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly in the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You see? But what is the result now of the coming of Christ? Look at Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he has sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, brothers and sisters, this this should fill us with joy, should it not? How can we not be glad that we are now a part of this new economy in Christ, no longer of the old? But let us be careful not to bring the old economy into the new. We must be careful not to do that as our Lord tells us and warns us of this very day. Right? The new economy is not something that we created. It's not something we initiated. It's not something we can control. Rather, it was brought about in Christ by divine authority. And so we must submit ourselves only to the prescriptions of that new economy. This is the problem that they had in Galatia, isn't it? They wanted the Christians to not only take the sign of the new covenant, which was baptism, but they wanted to sneak the old covenant sign in the back door as well. They wanted circumcision. But brothers and sisters, guess what? You can't slap the gospel on the law. It's useless doing it. Because they both have an entirely different substance. One is law. One is do this and live. The other is Christ who has already done it. Rest in Him and believe. And even today, brothers and sisters, let us be careful not to mix the old with the new. People love doing this all the time, don't they? They love having one foot in their old nature, one foot in the world, and one foot in the new. One foot in the church. They like to hold on to their favorite pet sins while still holding on to Christ. But you cannot do that. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will serve Christ or you will serve the world. 
But you cannot cling to the world while grasping onto Christ. With Christ came the new economy. And if you are a believer here today, by the grace of God, you have been made members of the new covenant kingdom. And so we must remain watchful. Not like the Pharisees, compelling others to do what is not prescribed in Scripture. We are not to trample on our brothers. Christian liberty as the Pharisees did. But rather, brothers and sisters, let us with joy participate and celebrate in being in this new covenant with gladness and celebration. For in it, we have the salvation. We have redemption secure. In it, we have the forgiveness of sin. And so let us anticipate our bridegroom and His return For when He comes, we will feast in the house of the Lord forever. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for the cross. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You, Lord, for granting to us repentance and faith and drawing us into Your new covenant kingdom. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to grant to us those saving benefits which we have in union with Christ. We pray, Lord, that You would implant this word that we have heard this morning upon our minds and our hearts, that we may observe it each day of our lives. And so, Father, we come before You this morning And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.